Good morning, church fam. Good to see you guys. Uh, if you're visiting, you're new, welcome. We're blessed that you're here. Thank you for joining us. So all our guest speakers have gone. Uh, we're blessed uh, the last three weeks to have those guys, but you're stuck with me once again. And so here we go. Uh, very grateful to have uh, the visitors, um, but I'm also really excited just to get back to Second Peter. Uh, we, you know, we've taken a break for the last three weeks. Uh, we should, Lord willing, finish out Second Peter right before Christmas, and then we'll have a special Christmas Eve service. As LJ mentioned, we're going to be off-site this year. Uh, looking forward to that as well. Uh, it's really similar to the Kadena venue, if you remember, if you're with us um, for Easter, it's, but it's an Udama, but really similar layout, although the children's room classes are much bigger, so we're excited for that, and we'll have uh, our nursery and preschool. And I think we're looking to maybe have it for up to second grade and then third grade and up will be in the main service for, you know, a very special time that we worship the birth of Jesus. Uh, but we should be finishing out second Peter before then. And then on new year's Eve, we'll have a special message as well. And then we're going to be just popping into the next book. Uh, most of you guys know for us here at Calvary, the way that we study the scriptures systematically, um, expositionally, but we go, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse. And so we're going to be in 1 John uh, at the new year, uh, 7 January. And so I'm looking forward uh, to, you know, starting a new book with you guys. But we still have some, some good stuff left in Second Peter. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Second Peter chapter 3. If you need to borrow a Bible, just uh, get LJ and Tim's attention there. You can wave at them. They'll be happy to let you borrow a Bible so you can follow with us. We're going to be picking up where we left off from a couple of weeks ago at verse five and just making our way really just three verses and uh, realize we haven't been here for a bit and some of you are new or you're visiting. Uh, so I will retread. We want to make sure we understand context as we drop into a text. But before I get there, I did have one other saved round in terms of announcement. Uh, I'd ask that you'd please pray for the Philippines trip. Uh, we we're really delighted to see the response. About 52 people uh, showed up for the interest meeting, uh, way more than we've ever had in all the years that we've ever gone, which is great. The problem is uh, availability of seats. And so uh, working with the travel agent that we had, uh, as time has gone on, you imagine uh, prices have starting to creep up and then availability has gone down. And so it, it's quite the hurdle trying to figure out how we're going to mobilize the group. Um, we have a, a line in the water, if you will. We have a pending call with Philippine Airlines, um, and hopefully working with them, we can find out something. So all the sages, please be in prayer for that. If you did sign up, uh, please be in prayer, and I'll be in communication with you directly uh, through email. At the end of the day, we just trust, you know, God's will, right? The plans of the heart belong to men, but God directs our steps, and so we'll see what the Lord does with that, but I wanted to give you an update on that. And then you should have received an email from me if you did sign up. If you didn't, make sure you find me because I'll make sure I got your right email. And that way, you know, I can communicate to you directly um, any developments. Okay? Sounds good. All right. Thanks. Thanks. All right. All right. Where are we? Second Peter 3. I uh, invite you to stand with me as we do here in honor of God and his word. You know, for many of your jobs, you stand, um, you know, in respect and honor of those who walk into the room. We want to do that for the Lord and his word. Peter, inspired by God's spirit, he pens for us. He says for this, verse five, for this, they willfully forget 
that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of water and in the water. That's a very interesting phrase. We'll talk about that. By which the world that then existed, what happened? Well, it perished being flooded with water contrast verse seven, but the heavens and the earth that are now, well, they're now preserved. What's this common denominator? It's the same word, the same word of God preserves, but also guess what are reserved reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition. It's a heavy word, destruction of ungodly men. All right, we're going to pause there. LJ prayed for us. I appreciated his prayer. When you take a moment, greet a neighbor, introduce yourself to somebody new, and, uh, and then you can have a seat. I entitled our message this morning, Ignorance is Dangerous. I probably should have qualified it more just to say uh, biblical ignorance uh, is, is dangerous. And uh, on the front side of this, I'm going to ask for your forgiveness just to bear with me a little bit. Uh, I did a little bit longer of an introduction. I did want to rewind some and make sure we have context to what we're going to talk about and what Peter's writing. Um, but also uh, I am going to add a little bit of my own uh, personal exhortation, which I, I try to stay away from, but there are so many things on my heart and, and hopefully, you know, receive it in grace. Yesterday I had the pleasure of meeting with some pastors in the morning and we got to meet with Pastor David Trubeck. If you were here last year, you might remember that Pastor David Trubeck was a guest speaker for us. He is a pastor in Israel. He's a Messianic Jew, um, born uh, and raised for part of his life in um, Latvia. His family moved back to Israel and, uh, and you know, believes Jesus as the Messiah, uh, pastors a congregation there, very evangelical, um, um, uh, shares the gospel uh, and, and God has been moving in his heart to make connection with Japan and they have a ministry in mainland Japan and uh, quite remarkable. But at the meeting yesterday, we got to meet with him and talk with him and pray with him. And of course we had a lot of questions asking what has life been since October 7th uh, when, you know, Hamas uh, the terror attack and, and, and uh, from Gaza and the south part of Israel and all that has, you know, unfolded since. And, um, and David shared, it, it, was, it was moving, it was um, uh, tough at times, um, but, but, but the air of it was um, very hopeful, you know, and I appreciated his perspective, uh, even as uh, an Israeli, as a Jewish pastor, um, through the lens of scripture. And citing scripture and citing biblical prophecy and, and how there's this sense of excitement, even for his own people and how there's um, uh, an awakening starting and people are more receptive to the gospel. And so in that sense, it was exciting. And, but it got me thinking about where we're going to be in Peter and, and all that Peter's bringing us to uh, into the prophetic and into things that touch upon the world that we live in today, especially all that's happening in Israel right now. And, and with all that's happening in Israel, in the world really, but especially in Israel, I, I think it's good for us that we, we as Christians do not want to turn a blind eye to current world events. Now there's a tension that we have to manage. And I, this is the part, you know, it's for my own heart. I think when it, when it comes to world events and news, uh, the tension to manage is that 
Uh, I don't think it's healthy or wise for us to be constantly consuming the news and world events. And it's easy to do in social media and various platforms. If you're like me, I can find myself easily engulfed in, in the vortex of it all, right? The enormity of all that's happening and all the variable ways and clicks and links and reels and everything that we can find ourselves getting sucked into. And, and it's almost like a, uh, a, you know, a, a, a stampede of the news cycle, right? And we can get trampled by it and find yourself just overwhelmed by these things. And, and if you're like me, what often happens is I find myself very agitated. I get angry at things. I get just, you know, depressed at things. I find myself despaired and, and without hope. And, and so there's that part of the equation. And I realize as I look at the news, sadly, a, a lot of it's just bias, right? Across the whole spectrum. And a lot of these things have become echo chambers for the things that we already believe. And it really becomes divisive. And I think intentionally, by the way, um, polarizes a lot of people. So all of the say, I think the Bible leads us to be, uh, you know, we're to why, uh, walk wisely, uh, you know, walk with wisdom. We want to exercise discernment when we read these things um, and caution in the things that we consume. And I think that's just good counsel, not just for the news, but anything we find ourselves being entertained by, right? Use caution. We want to be wise. The other side of that is uh, we don't want to be overly consumed, but we also don't want to be ignorant, right? We don't want to be uh, completely unaware of what's happening in the world around us. Uh, I, I think there's a prudency that we have as believers to discern the times in which we live so that we can then know how to walk and respond and there are conversations that are happening around us um, to bring hope and light into those things. And, and, and I say so because much of what's happening, especially now in the Middle East and what's happening in Israel, it has an effect on us. It impacts the church. And it impacts us as Christians following Jesus in our day. So when we come to the scriptures, the word of God provides us a biblical perspective as to what's happening. And when we look at the world's events, as David was doing for us in our meeting, through the lens of scripture, we realize, oh, we, we don't have to fall into the snare of fear mongering. You know, being baited by propaganda and these things that we... We, we, we can see how God's word, uh, his promises and predictions and prophecies that they're becoming, you know, they're starting to come online and, and, and the stage is being set to be fulfilled as we'll get there for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And, and this is where Peter's going to bring us. And when we, when we talk about prophecy and we talk about predictions, you understand that if we're going to be students of the Bible, then inherently we're going to be students of prophecy. Arguably a quarter to a third of scripture is prophetic. I mean, even when we talk about the birth of Christ, that, that was prophesied. Uh, signs and um, prophecies were given even to the birth of our Savior. And he fulfilled those things as uh, proof that he was who God claimed that he, um, you know, that he was. And, uh, and so prophecy is not intended. God is not intended to scare us. We don't have to be afraid of these things, but really to prepare us so that we, we can be ready for what happens. We'll get there soon enough. But one of the things that Peter is going to postulate for us is that the world's going to be judged and, and all the world. And he's going to say here, it's going to be judged not by flood, but by a fire. 
And my paraphrase of that, he says, everything's going to burn baby. And if that's true, then how ought we to live? And, and it's that perspective that then helps us to have priorities. It's that perspective that helps us to make a diagnostic like, all right, what's going on in my life today? And am I ready? If Jesus Christ came back before the bell rings today, are we ready? And, and that's where Peter wants to bring us. Now, of course, that means we're not only scrolling the news and reading the headlines of the daily news, but it, most importantly, it means we're scrolling the scriptures, that we're spending time in, in the word of God and reading his lines, if you will, the good news. And I appreciate that because uh, I'm often agitated by the news, but it's in the word of God where I find my peace. And we can find our peace and we can find an anchor and we can find perspective. Uh, you know, it's God word, God's word that provides this heavenly brand of peace. Isaiah says that, uh, that God will keep us in perfect peace. Those whose minds are steadfast because we trust in him. Right? Isaiah 26, three. And I bring all of that up and I share that by way of longer introduction than usual, just to say that Peter knows this well. That is why throughout his letters, both first Peter and second Peter, he's advocated for us being grounded in and growing by the word of God. I mean, hence even the title of our series, because Peter knows that in the last days, deceptions coming, trials are coming, and he doesn't want his readers, and as we read it today, that we would be defrauded by deception, that we'd be conned by counterfeits, and find ourselves spiritually swindled out of the fullness of what God has. And how do we make sure that that doesn't happen? That we're established firmly in Scripture. And God says that not just through Peter, but even in the Old Testament, through the prophet Hosea, Hosea 4, 6, God says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you've rejected knowledge. And he goes on to say, here are the consequences. And so with that, it's the idea that we, we can't afford to be ignorant or uninformed. And so again, I need to qualify my title. It, it's biblical ignorance that can be dangerous and a, and a lack of knowledge of scripture. And often with it, because we don't know scripture well, it's a shallow depth of relationship with the Lord. It can lead us into all kinds of problems. And so I really believe God does not want us to be ignorant, that we'd have a depth of our relationship with the Lord, that our roots would grow down deep. And with that, then we would, you know, be able to stand firm. And I do find it's interesting that the Bible itself addresses certain areas it specifically says and calls out areas like we're, we're not to be ignorant in. I mean, there might be more, but I can think of five. The first is we're, we're not to be ignorant in uh, the person and the role and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 12, and he says, now concerning the things of the spirit, I don't want you to be uninformed brethren. And he goes on to talk about the, the person and the gifts and the role in the role of those gifts in the life of the body. And so he says, okay, don't be ignorant about the Holy spirit. The second thing that we read is uh, we're not to be ignorant about God's heart and plan for Israel. Uh, Romans nine, 10 and 11 to me, it's very clear. Uh, God's not done with Israel. Uh, God has a plan for those people, his people. Um, you know, Paul uses the descriptor of various things of how we've been grafted in. Um, and yet, God's not done. And so I, I do believe the idea of replacement theology, if you've heard of that before, I, I don't think that's biblical. 
Uh, we're not to be ignorant of, of Satan's strategies. Um, you know, in my mind, I kind of vision like Wiley Coyote. I'm dating myself. Anybody remember Wiley Coyote? His bag of tricks. And, and that's the schemes of the devil. We're, we're, we're not to be ignorant of his schemes, of the way that he tries to trip us up. Uh, and along with that is the idea of spiritual warfare. We're not to be ignorant of the fact that, listen, if you, if you name the name of Christ today, uh, you are combatant in uh, this life. That we fight uh, not against flesh and blood, but we are in a spiritual battle. And the Bible kind of pulls down the curtain to this reality that we live in. And we're not to be ignorant of these things. And, and, and the last one, number five, is we're, we're not to be ignorant about the second return of Christ. The fact that Jesus said, I'm coming back and that we're to be ready. And what does that look like? What are the signs and what, are, what is God going to do? And, and, and yet what's interesting to me is that those very things are often the things that the church is least informed about. Those are the very topics that often people uh, have, you know, wild and different ideas and thoughts. And, and, and so I, I find it's interesting that second Peter actually addresses all five of those things and talks about all of those things. And so in our study this morning, we, we get to rejoin him in his exhortation to his original audience. Of course, Christians living in a day, um, walking through those things and apply it to us too, right? We, we, we live in a time where counterfeits of Christ uh, abound. There's all manners of twisted and distorted versions and perversions of the gospel being propagated, especially through the internet and, and social media. And Peter basically says, Hey, I, I want to make sure you have a spiritual situational awareness. There's a lot of spiritual booby traps out there and don't step on one. That's, that's the idea. All right, so I draw your attention back to verse five as we'll unpack these things. He says, for this, they willfully forget. So we drop in the middle of context. We're going to have to ask ourselves, first of all, who are they? And what is he talking about? Um, Second Peter is essentially a letter of warning. It's only three chapters, but it's a letter of warning. And, and we can summarize it. Peter saying, hey guys, I love you. Uh, don't be stupid. Don't stray. Don't get suckered by false teaching. Stay the course. And the way that you stay the course is you stay close to Christ. And the way that you stay close to Christ is you ground yourself uh, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. And how do we do that? Well, it's through the word of God. And he would add, and don't lose hope. Regardless of what's happening around you, regardless of what other people want to tell you, uh, Jesus Christ is coming back. It's a fact. And so don't let anyone pull you away from that truth. Just stay on the straight and narrow. That's, that, that's the gist of second Peter. Along with that though, he outlines how the false teachers operate. And we spent a lot of time in chapter two. We talked about uh, as Peter highlights their attitudes, they, they have this attitude of cockiness of arrogance. They they're self-willed. They think they're above the law. Uh, and also their actions, their actions are, they pretend to care, but guess what? They don't really care. They're just trying to use you. He says, they try to exploit you, um, with deceptive words. And so there's an element where they're smooth talkers. They don't just walk around with bowling shirts that say false teachers or name tag, uh, you know, on a black coat with, uh, you know, the collar up. You're like, Oh, there they are. There they are. We knew it. But they, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're sneaky and they're deceptive on, on purpose. And so he notes their tactics. Um, he talks about the things that they do and the things that they say. 
And that's where we, we find ourselves coming into chapter three, very specifically, one of the things that they do and one of the things that they say, well, one of the things that they try to do is they try to sow mistrust and doubt against the veracity of scripture. They, they try to get people to doubt God's word. That's the idea. And that, I mean, that's the playbook of Satan himself in the garden. Did God really say, did God really say that? And so they use the same play. And it's the tactic that Peter addresses when they come in the last day, scoffers will say, where is the promise of his coming? Where Christ hasn't come back at you. You Christians have been saying that for thousands of years and look at nothing. Everything's the same. And so their contention is that it must not be true because everything remains the same. Everything is as it was from the beginning. And so their attempt is to scoff and ridicule and mock you, our beliefs, and not just that belief, but all of our beliefs. And again, that's a sign of the end times. We're, we're living in a day where uh, the antagonism against Christians and Bible-believing Christians and us wanting to live our lives and raise our families according to how the Bible, like that, you know, that's under heavy attack. And Peter tells us, listen, that's one of the signs of the end times. These mockers will come and these scoffers will come. And especially trying to refute the idea that Christ is coming back. And so what, what does Peter do? He basically is just going to set a defense against that by telling the truth. It's a great example for us. And the best defense against deception is just to know the truth and to know it well. And be locked in on that. We know what God's word says. I'm convinced of that. I know what it means and I'm not going to stray from these things. And that's by the way, why we as a church family uh, tend to go a little slower through scripture and tend to go a little deeper. At least that's my attempt and make sure we're grounded in the things that we know, understand why we believe what we believe, right? To worship the Lord with all of our mind as well. So they, they willfully forget who are they? The scoffers. The they of verse five is the scoffers of verse three. And one of the things that Peter does is that he'll dismantle their argument. Their claim is God's word can't be true because Jesus hasn't come back. He hasn't stepped into time and all things from the beginning are exactly the same as they always were. That's their claim. And so essentially they're saying, well, God's not, God hasn't, and God's not going to do anything. And, and Peter basically says false or if you're my teenage kids, cap, right? <laughs> fake news. And then he, he, he engages that. And how does he engage it? He says, uh, well, there's three proofs that your erroneous claim. The first proof is God's creation itself. What, what the earth looked like on day one and versus on day six was completely different. So he adds that as a proof claim. The second is the, the fact that there was a flood and the earth looked a, a lot different pre-flood, post-flood. And, and those are the two examples really that then become uh, the, um, the, the, the qualifiers for the fact that guess what? And it's going to change again. There's a coming judgment and the world is going to be radically changed once again. And, and so notice with me that Peter doesn't just say, oh, these guys are mistaken. Uh, they have bad information. But he uses the phrase, they, these scoffers, they willfully forget. This is an intentional denial of the truth. They, they know what's true. 
And yet they intentionally deny it. That these scoffers think that they, they've never seen God uh, effectually change their perceived world. And that, that he cannot or is not, is not capable or he's not real. And, and Peter hints at the idea that these false teachers have had some exposure to the truth. No, they, they know what God's word says. They, they know about creation. They know about even the flood. And yet they, they willfully forget these things. They, they purposely ignore these things and they twist the truth. Now it's one thing to have never heard the gospel, right? It's one thing to not be exposed to these things. Um, and yet quite a different to know them or heard them and then say, that's stupid. That's, I reject that. I'm going to come against that. Sometimes in our interaction with people, you know, that question will come up before I was a believer. I'd ask that question. What does God do with the people who've never heard the gospel? What if they, what if someone, you know, in the, in the mountains have never heard the name of Jesus Christ? What does God do with that person? Guess what? God, God has an answer for that. It's in Romans chapter one. Actually, I think we have time. Why don't you turn there real quick? You can put your finger in second Peter tab over to Romans one. We are still trying to find the secret sauce to our climate control. Are you, I see some people fanning themselves. Are you guys warm? Yeah. All right. I got a bunch of yeses. Half a degree though, we go frigid. So just know. All right. Those, <laughs> those are our choices. Muggy, warm, frigid. <laughs> Romans 1 uh, at verse 18. There's a lot here. I'm going to just read it to verse 25, but it correlates to what Peter's saying. Paul writes these things. He says, the wrath of God's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Notice who suppress the truth. The idea is they know it, but they hold it down. They deny it. It's evident, but they're like, eh, I'll just ignore that. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Guess what? God even puts it inside. That's the idea. This inward conviction. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, there it is, creation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead. So that they, who are they? Those that reject that. And what are they? Well, they're without excuse. They're without excuse. Nothing about the gospel, nothing about the knowledge of Jesus. This is just the fact that by virtue of observation of, of reasonable um, observation of the created designed world around us, there should be a, a reasonable conclusion. There is a creator. There is a designer. And he goes on to say, but because they knew God and did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. This is idolatry. I'm going to make this thing, and the thing I've made, this is going to be my God. The birds, four-footed animals, creepy things. And so what happens? It says God there gave them up to their uncleanness to the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves, who exchanged the truth, the truth of God for a lie, 
and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. And so the Bible tells us clearly that people are without excuse, even to the acknowledgement of the existence of a creator. Observing the things that are created, like the nautilus shell. I mean, go to the beach and look at a palm tree, look at a flower. Um, look at the way the body's organized. If you've taken any biology class, anatomy or physiology, or DNA, uh, the Bible itself says there, there should be a reasonable conclusion. If you're honest and recognize, oh, there's a complexity here, there's a beautiful design here, that means there must be a beautiful designer, there's a creator. But what happens, people suppress that. They deny that. This truth, they exchange it, he says, for a lie. And they become futile. They, they, they think they, they know more than God. They profess this wisdom, but in reality, they, they become a fool. Because they're denying an observable truth. And so you can turn back to, to Second Peter. The, the correlation is that there's a group of people that know the truth, and yet they willfully forget. They intentionally deny. They intentionally reject what is true. And so what are they intentionally uh, rejecting? Well, Peter puts two things out. He says they, they deny, reject the creation, God's creation, the fact that God created the world. And along with that, they deny the fact that God judged the world as given by the Noah account. And so he goes on to explain that. He says they willfully forget. What do they willfully forget or deny? That the word, by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. Now, that's a really interesting phrase. And uh, I'll do my best to try to explain it. Um, but for sure what happens. Here's what we know for sure. Peter goes back to creation. So he goes all the way back to the book of Genesis um, in Genesis chapter one. And in Genesis chapter one, we have the secret of the universe. How did we get here? How did the universe happen? Genesis one tells us, right? If you know that joke, right? God's into baseball because in the beginning, all right, just make sure you're awake. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we're told right there, plain as day. How, how did the world, how did the universe, how did we come to existence? God created the heavens and the earth. God created the universe. God created planet earth. God created the cosmos. And how did he do that? He spoke it into existence. In the Hebrew, the idea is that it is from nothing. I mean, that's the creative power of God's spoken word. He just, he spoke it into existence. And, and by the way, it, this is a, um, an amendment or a, a side point, but I think it's important for us. We are not some cosmic accident. Uh, there is a terrible false teaching of the world around us that says, Oh, we, we evolved from monkeys and, and science would say, and, and taught us right you know, in school, like, well, we came from the goo, then the zoo, and then you, and you look to the scriptures and the scriptures clearly teach otherwise. No, you are uniquely created. You are created in the image of God. You, you bear the image of your creator. And as such, you have value and you have worth and you have purpose. 
and, and nobody else in this world. And guess what? Not even yourself gets to say that that's not true. God declared it. The Bible tells us plainly. See, if the world wants us to believe and our kids to believe like, oh, we, we've come from animals. And then, and then they're shocked that when people act like animals. Well, what, what have we been teaching them? And so the Bible is very clear that you, our life is a gift from God. And your life has value and has meaning and has purpose. And part of God's purpose and plan for you and me is that we would come to know him, have a relationship with him. Jesus said, I came to give you life and life abundantly. Not just we would merely survive, but we would thrive and we would enjoy life and we'd live life to the fullness and all that God wants to bestow upon you and bless you with. Genesis 1-2 then describes the earth as without form. The Bible says without form and it's void. And it says that the spirit of God was hovering above the waters, which is really interesting. So as I read that, I think, okay, God started with just this ball of water. And then he would separate the waters. He'd gather the waters and then land would come. And then in Genesis 1, 6, it says that he separated the waters from the waters. And he said, he put a firmament between the two. And so what does that exactly mean? I'll be honest. I, I don't know. It seems to me as I read that in the plain understanding that God basically put water up in the sky and there's water below. I understand water below, right? Because we live in a beautiful island and we get to go in the water below. But the water above, now some believe that it's this idea of this water canopy, this firmament that God had that um, existed before the flood. And that that is why when we read the uh, you know, Genesis account, people live a long time, right? Hundreds of years. And, and so the, there's a, the idea that uh, it was kind of this greenhouse effect. And so longevity and uh, health and vigor and growth was just, you know, it's kind of in this perfect greenhouse effect. We get a little bit of understanding. I mean, here in Okinawa, like, at least for me, I don't have to water my weeds. They grow crazy, right? And, uh, and I think it's interesting, at least the correlation, like Okinawans have the long, one of the longest lifespans. Although it's starting to decrease because McDonald's and other things anyways. But. And so there, there's that idea. So what, what do we do know? The Bible tells us there's water above and water below. And, and that's what Peter's refer, referring to. The idea that God formed and fashioned the earth. He created the universe. But why, why is he saying that? His point behind that is to say, listen, the mockers are saying everything has been the same since the beginning. And Peter says, no, it's not. Actually, in day two, it was different. Like, you don't have to go very far from the beginning to realize, like, it looks very different from day two to day three to day four. By day six, it's completely different. And so that's his point. The earth was very different when God first created it, and it changed. And when else did it change? Well, it changed when there was a flood as well. And so he's coming against this argument, but I think he's really clever, too, uh, in the way that he presents his argument. Now, he tells us it's by the word of God. And that, that's an important phrase. By the word of God, these things happen. The word of God was the active power of creation. By God's word, uh, it, you know, existence came out of nothing. Every atom, every uh, molecule, every subatomic particle in the universe, God created. 
Psalm 33, six says by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. And so it, it's the, the word of God that brought forth these things. Now, now sadly, even as there's this group that willfully forget that, that in the word of God and by the word of God, this is how creation came. This is how the world existed. This is what God did there. There are even some within church who willfully, they join the scoffers and the mockers. They too willfully forget or they too uh, deny the biblical teaching of the creation account that they, they find themselves in this place to say, Oh, that's just allegorical or that's just poetry. Well, that's just an adaptation of all these kind of legends, you know, that existed back then. And they were an amalgamation, you know, kind of put together. So it, it, we, if we find ourselves in that place, we, we put ourselves in the same place of the scoffers. We're making a mockery of God's word. I realize there are different views when it comes to the creation account and the specifics. What did it mean? But the waters were separated in, in these things. I, I, I get it. I understand. We want to get all of the details, but we have enough. And, and again, this is my personal opinion. I personally believe that many of those views are often an attempt to try to reconcile what we learned in school from conventional evolutionary theory, by the way, right? Theory. And then we hold that up as though that's the primary, though that's the truth. And then we try to fit scripture into this. And so we come up with this kind of wonky thing, but I would contend that it's backwards. We start with scripture and what the scripture declares. And then we place what quote unquote, you know, observable science has declared to us underneath that. And so I, I need to qualify this, but I do believe it's a literal belief in creation. And the idea, when I say literal belief in creation, I mean the account of Genesis, the fact that God created Adam and Eve, that there was a flood, those things that they're not stories, they're not allegory, they're not legend, that they actually happened, that it's essential in, in laying a, a foundation for us to understand the rest of scripture, God's plans and God's purposes, and even the end times. And so as a church, if you didn't know this, we teach Genesis to be an accurate historical account. It's not a story. It's not allegory. It's not folklore. It's fact. And we invest a lot of money in our children's curriculum and we, it's answers in Genesis curriculum. And knowing, and I believe knowing the beginning that helps us to understand the end. Now I'm going to add this. Okay. I personally believe in a six day literal creation. That when God declared it was evening and day, that that was a day. And that on the seventh day, God rested, not because he got tired, not because he's like, I need a break, but he gave us an example. And Jesus would say later, right? That the Sabbath was made for us. We weren't made for the Sabbath as an example, that we should rest. And, and I believe that when, we, when you and I have a, a solid grasp of biblical creation, it creates the foundation, a solid foundation for us to understand all other doctrine and theology, including eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end times, end things. And so, I, again, I, I take a lot of time to talk about this because that's where Peter's going to bring us. And there tends to be, 
I, I hate to say my opinion. So I don't want to just my, my perspective of there tends to be a correlation that those that would disparage and, um, and treat the uh, creation account as allegorical or it's a folklore or it's just stories. Like the correlation is they often then look at end times as also allegorical and folklore and poetic and not as literal. And they often go hand in hand. But I would say to you that for us to deny these things is to undermine the very foundation of our faith. And so Peter, Peter is going to tie those two thoughts together. He's going to tie creation and eschatology, the end of things together. What does he say? Verse six, he says, by, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. And so here's the second rebuttal. Scoffers say, everything's the same. Peter says, no, it wasn't. Even at the beginning, it wasn't the same. By day two, it's not the same. By day six, it's different. He says, and guess what? And, and, and if you think it was just all the same, I, I add something else. I'll ante up. The flood made everything different. Because the world that existed then, it, it was gone. It wiped out. God cleared it, you know, new canvas. being flooded by the water. And I think Peter's clever to use this example because uh, he's refuting the mockers of his day. But guess what? There, another time in history where a group of people were living in rebellion and also mocking what God had promised. And when was that? Well, during the flood. It happened in the days of Noah. And so there's Noah uh, under a very different condition in which we live because he lived in his 600th year of life that the flood came. It took him a hundred years to, to build this ark. And one day God said, pencils down. It's time. And some believe, and I, and I believe that if there was a water canopy that was surrounding the earth, that's what fell. The waters from above and the waters from below, it flooded the earth. And notice, by the way, Peter doesn't believe in a localized flood, right? There are those who say, ah, well, it's just a regional flood. He says the world was flooded. You read the Genesis account, it talks about how the mountains were covered. All the earth and all the things on the earth, only the things, uh, you know, on on the ark. The creepy crawly things and the birds. I mean, how could all the earth be covered in water? Because the Bible says so. And, and what I find interesting is that more and more, uh, you then have scientific, geological, historical, archaeological, anthropological, all of these evidences that then come and they support, guess what? A worldwide flood. Right? Every civilization and culture, there's a, tale or an account of a catastrophe of a flood. So you can get it sociologically and scientists have found fish fossils, fish fossils on Mount Everest in the Himalayas. I mean, like, Hey, riddle me that Batman. How did, how do you get fish fossils up on the mountain? We can read Genesis. I, I, I have the answer. And they come up with this kind of weird concocted thing. And so again, for us as Christians, we can look at the world and have a biblical worldview and it makes sense. 
So what, what was the condition though? The world, which then that then existed, perished. What, what was the world that then existed? What was the condition? What was the world of Noah's day? Well, Genesis six tells us the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart were continually evil. And I find this interesting. And the Lord was sorry. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth. He's grieved in his heart. And so he said, I, I, I'm going to destroy man. It's God's prerogative. He made it, created it. He's like, ah, I don't want that anymore. I'm going to um, destroy man who I've created from the face of the earth, the man and the beast, creepy thing, birds of the air. From sorry that I made them. But then we have this great um, pivot. But, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Again, why, again, why, are, why are we spending a lot of time on this? Like, why, why is this important for us to know? Peter's talking about these things. Here's, here's where I, hopefully you can make the connection. Because Jesus tells us really some, something very important about his return, about the last days. Part of it is scoffers are going to come. That's what Peter tells us. But Jesus then ties in something. And this is also then where we find out a little bit about Noah's day. The world that then existed, that perished. In Matthew 24, Jesus is speaking this time. He says, but as in the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the son of man be. So he gives us a marker. As in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of man be. All right, what were the days of Noah? Well, we just read Genesis account. Evil, people rejecting God, doing their own thing. And, and Jesus adds to that. For as in the days of Noah, they were before the flood, they're eating and drinking, marrying and giving to marriage. Just life as usual, doing their own thing. Had no clue. It just seemed like things were as they've always been, at least in that season. He says, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. And Jesus says, and so shall the coming of the son of man. He's speaking of himself. Be. That's why it's important for us. To know. The world then filled with evil intent and actions, people living as they want, rejecting God, denying God and rebellion to God. King, I, I don't know about you, but like we, we, we live in the same world today. In Noah's day, God used the flood to bring judgment on a God-rejecting, sinful world. And Peter says, and the Bible tells it clearly, another judgment's coming. Another judgment's coming. You know, the, the, the default application, anytime we talk about um, Bible prophecy and the second return of Christ, because we'll talk a little bit, because there's different views about it as well, right? The rapture and tribulation, we're going to get into that. But the default application always is be ready. Regardless of your eschatological position, right, where you believe and what's going to happen, the default is he's coming back and we should be ready. And so in verse seven, he goes on to say, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, they're preserved, but guess what? They're also reserved. Reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition, the destruction, the judgment uh, condemnation of ungodly people. 
So Peter makes this contrast. The world then, but the heavens and the earth that are now. So it's then and it's now. Then, this is what happened and God brought judgment. And now, the thing that's the same, well, it's the same word of God. It's the same word of God that preserves, the same word of God that's reserved. It's the word of God that framed the world. It's powerful. It preserves us. It it keeps us in store. That's a beautiful word in the Greek. It's where we get the word thesaurus from. It means a treasury. And so it's true of the world then, creation. It's true of the world now. And it's true of your daily life. The, The word of God isn't just preserving the entire world around us, but it preserves our lives as well. The word of God is powerful to keep us on the path that we should stay on. It's a treasury of knowledge for you and for me, for wisdom and peace and perspective. So our inner worlds don't fall apart and all that's happening. And gang, I realize it's a lot of words just to kind of bring us back to the same point. You know, we, if you're like me, sometimes I tend to pursue other sources, podcasts and books and blogs and streams of popular teachers and, you know, coaches and and speakers and these things And, and nothing wrong. I would say nothing wrong with supplementing our library, if you will, supplementing, you know, as a side dish to the main, but we got to keep the main thing, the main thing. And that is the, the word of God as our main source of input. Charles Spurgeon said, you can visit, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. I love that phrase. The psalmist declared that the word of God is a light and a lamp for our feet and our path. And, and so the idea is that a lamp and a light, it illuminates. It shows us where to go. You see, the word of God is this lens that God provides us and it, and it provides correcting vision for us. When we look at the world around us, we look at things that are happening to us and around us in the world, what's happening with Israel, what's happening with Iran, what's happening, you know, with the, this battle of ideologies, we realize all oh, these are spiritual battles, but it's going to bring us to a pinnacle and the pinnacle is, well, God's judgment. And a lot of people don't like to hear about the truth of God's judgment. They don't like to hear the idea that God is a God of wrath. That God's going to judge our sins. I think even within the church, sometimes we we just want to hear, we just want to talk about the good things of God. Let's talk about, let's talk about his grace, his forgiveness, his provision. I, I love talking about those things too but we can't neglect the fact that God is righteous and God is holy, that God is just. And then God calls us to repentance and God calls us to leave sin, reject sin, die to ourselves. God talks a lot about uh, disciplining ourselves, denying ourselves, wrecking our old nature dead. Sometimes we, if you've been around for a while, you've heard me say this. Sometimes we, we approach God in the Bible, like a salad bar. Right, we get to this. If you're like me in a salad bar, I just take the things that I like. And sometimes they're not even salad. It's the Jello, and you know it's ma- uh, mac- you know it's the macaroni salad. And you know what I don't take? I don't take beets because it just makes everything red. And I don't take the little baby corns, those abominations. What are those things? 
I, I leave them. I just take the things that I think are yummy. And sometimes we approach, we approach scripture and we approach the Lord in the same way. We're like, oh, we love his grace and his forgiveness. Yeah, Lord, forgive me. Your mercies are new every morning. We love all that. And then we're like, ah, Lord, um, confessing my sins, turning from gossip, turning my eyes from evil things, uh, disciplining myself. Like we, you know, we, we, we tend to leave those things. Purity and holiness, God's wrath, God's judgment. And the Bible is very clear. We make no mistake. A day of reckoning is coming. A day where God's judgment is going to fall. And if you know the book of Revelation, you know, it's going to be terrible. It's not fun. It's going to be terrible. And so Peter in writing this, and this is, I just want to set this foundation because when we get to verse eight and nine and and 10, he's going to talk about the day of the Lord. And he's talking about like how we then, he's going to say, beloved, but do not forget. And and God's timing is not our timing. And guess what? God's level of patience, way greater than our level of patience. But his point is that he wants to argue this, the, the scoffers. He's going to refute them. Everything's the same. Peter says, no, it's not. You, you, you're, you're, you, you willfully forget. You, you intentionally deny the truth. And it's a weak argument that they've presented. He says, everything isn't the same. Since it's creation. So he goes to creation. And then he points to the flood. And, 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 and those things then become the actual factors to substantiate that God's going to do it again. God's faithfulness of the past is an indicator of God's faithfulness for what he promises he's going to do again. And so he's going to talk about a future judgment that's going to come. And so in the end, he says, God's word will prove true, whether you believe it or not, but far better if we believe it. Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we do thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. And we thank you that God, you haven't come back yet. And as we'll study uh, next week, that the reason why is that you, your will is that no, nobody would perish. Lord, you want everybody to come to repentance, but you don't force us. It's an invitation. And I pray even today, if there's anybody here who's yet to receive that invitation, to say yes to that invitation, that today would be the day they turn from their sins they receive you as their Lord and savior to believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Christ is their Lord and their savior. So father, I pray that you would help us to do that. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. It's a lens that provides us corrective uh, perspective in the world around us, the things that are happening to us and near us. Lord, we thank you that um, we can study your scripture and Lord, Believing that when we understand the, and believe in the truth of how things began, Lord, we can believe in the truth of how things will end. And that we don't have to be afraid of that. It's exciting. But in between those things, you've given us life and life abundantly, a life of value and of, of purpose and of worth. And uh, Lord, that we would live that out to your glory. And we love you and we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.